Welcome to Just Go Grind, a show all about building and investing in companies, featuring interviews with startup founders, investors, and operators, sharing the best insights into the world of entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Justin Gordon, and in this episode, we have Colleen Cutcliffe, CEO and co-founder of Pendulum Therapeutics, a company that is empowering people with groundbreaking products and tools to achieve long-term health. They're starting with type 2 diabetes and a new scientifically anchored approach that starts inside the gut. They're a team of scientists, doctors, and innovators, and they've raised $35 million in venture capital, backed by Sequoia, Costa Ventures, Felicia's Ventures, True Ventures, and more. And in this episode, we go through how this all got started, how Colleen's built this company, the research involved, which is many years in the process, and much, much more. As always, these show notes are at justgogrind.com slash podcast, and you can support the show by leaving a rating and review over in Apple Podcasts. Without further ado, here's Colleen Cutcliffe, CEO and co-founder of Pendulum Therapeutics. Colleen, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, I appreciate you you taking the time to come on here. And for people who don't know Pendulum, can you tell us a little bit about what you're doing today with Pendulum? Absolutely. Um, Pendulum is a company that is taking advantage of this new emerging science called the microbiome to develop a new line of probiotics like the world has never seen before. (laughs) And really what we're creating are probiotics that have the efficacy of a drug, but without all the side effects. And so we're developing our products like you would a pharmaceutical company, but they're all natural and they are um, kind of these novel uh, class of probiotics. And for this, I know it started a few years ago already. How did you decide to start this company in the first place, Colleen? Well, I would say deciding to start a company is sort of like the decision to get married or the decision to have kids. The, the less you know, the, the, the better it is. <laughs> um, I would say for me, uh, there were two really compelling reasons to start the company. The first was really that there was this, um, as I said, this emerging microbiome science, which seemed to be... Um, what I thought was going to be the next wave of of new therapeutic development. And there was just this big opportunity to go after this part of the body that we'd never looked at before. And so um, at the core of being able to create these new therapeutics is DNA sequencing technology. And I happened to work at a DNA sequencing instrument company at the time, and I could see directly the application of that technology in this new medical space. And um, so I, I thought, okay, we can use this technology we built in this space to identify entirely new interventions. And since me and I had two co-founders, all three of us deeply understand uh, the technical side of how to do that, there was an opportunity to do something that we sort of felt like, well, somebody's going to do it, so why not us? Um, and then I uh, I actually first pitched the idea internally to, to the CEO of, of our instrument company at the time. And I said, you know, the microbiome is this new emerging space. DNA sequencing is at the core of it. We've built this instrument that's going to help give these high resolution insights. We should totally create this service actually within the company to look at the microbiome and create all these tools around it. And he said to me, um, look, Colleen, when you, when, you, when you have a company, it's really important that you stay focused. And mm-hmm. we're an instrument company, not a tools company. And so we're not going to build that here. And so that was my first entry into the series of no's that happen when you just try to start a company and pitch your idea. Um, but that really gave me kind of a, a, 
a new insight, which was, all right, well, if I'm not going to do it here um, and I really believe this is something, then I got to figure out another way to do it. And then secondly, on a personal level, as I started to learn more about the microbiome, I realized that uh, it was even more compelling for me. And that personal story was that my daughter was born, my first daughter was born um, almost two months premature. And when you have a preemie that early, you get to hold them for a couple of seconds after they're born, and then they get taken away from you to intensive care. And she spent the first uh, month of her life really in intensive care and hooked up to all these monitors and machines and receiving multiple doses of antibiotics, which completely kill your microbiome. Mm. And um, this study came out around that same time where they looked at all these babies who were receiving multiple doses of antibiotics before they were six months old. And they found that as they became teenagers, they were more likely to be obese and to have metabolic issues and to have type two diabetes. And so I realized, oh my gosh, we have this technological advantage. I could go to work on creating a product that could not only help millions of people out there, but something that I would even give to my own daughter. And so then it really became a little bit of a no-brainer, like why not try? From that though, what were the first steps then in making this an actual company then? <laughs> the first steps were uh, literally like, okay, what do we do now? How do we, how do we get money? What do we do? And so the first thing that I did was I reached out to the person who was the CEO, um, the previous CEO of the company that I worked at. So there had been a CEO turnover and I went to the previous person who had raised um, hundreds of millions of dollars in the middle of a um, you know down economy in the early 2000s. And so basically I said, hey, I got to raise some money to start a company. How does one do that? And I literally didn't even know what a venture capitalist was. He, he just said, well, there are these people, they're called venture capitalists. And what they do for a living is they try to find early stage companies to invest in. And so what you have to do is you have to put together a, a pitch deck and the content of that pitch deck is your business idea. So it was, I mean, I was really starting from zero knowledge about any of this stuff. But luckily, um, kind of living in the Bay Area has a big advantage, which is that there are a lot of entrepreneurs here. And so the start of this was I quit my job. I said, all right, I'm going to give myself three months to raise what I thought was going to, what I needed was $5 million. And... Um, and I just spent that summer networking, just meeting people. And my goal of every meeting was to get more, get that person to introduce me to more people and just to learn what people's stories were. And I wish your podcast had been around at that time. I certainly <laughs> would have listened to every podcast, but I was having to learn this, you know, by fire. And so that's really what I did. And, and the funny thing is, Justin, that I thought I needed $5 million to start this company. We ended up starting this company with $30,000. And Ooh. Slightly different. <laughs> <laughs> yes. yes. Um, and uh, that was the beginnings, learning everything. Wait, so that delta though, that difference between the 5 million and the 30,000 starting away, explain that. So 30,000 gave you enough to kind of keep going and then you were eventually able to raise. Like, I'm curious how that, how that went for you. Yeah, well, um, so the way it went was that I uh, got advice from a bunch of people who had had multiple successful exits of companies on how to write a great pitch deck. And this was an important learning lesson for me. So it, if you have multiple successful exits and you go back to pitch to a VC, a new business idea, you're basically coming in with an incredible amount of credibility and uh, credibility in executing. And so your pitch deck does not actually have to be fully <laughs> baked or beautiful or well thought out in every detail. 
it's much easier for you to receive that funding. If you're somebody like me, who has a really strong technical background, but no business knowledge whatsoever, and you've never started a company and you have no track record of a successful exit, um, it's a different kind of pitch deck you got to put together. And so I had gotten all this advice and from amazing people who are still uh, advisors and on the board of the company today um, of how to write these pitch decks and then introductions. And I literally just marched up and down Sand Hill and was meeting with all these people after receiving a warm introduction. And what I got back was um, a lot of feedback that I felt like was um, a little bit of a catch-22. It was like, well, if you had this data, um, then I would be interested in in your uh, in your in investing in your company. Or if you had this team, then I would be interested in investing in your company. Or if you'd reach this milestone, it was all the things that I was essentially fundraising for. And so I felt like, well, fuck your. I'm asking you for the money to go, right. <laughs> and you're telling me I have to get funding. What is this? And so um, ultimately, what I realized was that between me and my co-founders, because we were all very technical and we could actually do this work just between the three of us, we said, all right, let's pivot a little bit. These venture capitalists, they are not going to give us money. That's pretty clear. You know, we spent you know, several months talking to them and getting a variety of different rationale for why we couldn't do this company and then ended up saying, let's just offer the service of doing DNA sequencing and trying to find these insights into the microbiome. And so we actually started as a service company. And the first company that agreed to uh, pay us to do this work, um, it was for $100,000. And they said, we'll pay you $30,000 up front, uh, $30,000 midway through, and then $40,000 when the work is complete. <laughs> and it was one of these almost comical situations because I thought, well, I guess that's how I've paid to have work on my house done. So that seems reasonable. I had no idea how this was going to work. And so that was, we got this $30,000 and that was how we started the company. And the first year of the company or for the first nine months of the company, this was how it went. We essentially got about half a million dollars uh, to build out our discovery platform and all the data infrastructure that we needed to ultimately then identify this probiotic combination that we now have on the market for, for type two diabetes. And, um, I, the, the, the funny story that, uh, around that first $30,000 was when you're trying to fundraise the first time around, uh, or get any kind of sale, you know, you talk to a lot of people, a lot of people who seem like it's going to be promising, but then it doesn't pan out. And in some ways I didn't have the certainty that this was going to pan out. So the, this, company when the CEO said, all right, we're in, um, we'll, we'll put down $30,000 for you to start the work. Where do we wire the money to? And I thought, well, okay, maybe it's awkward for them to wire the money directly to my personal bank account. So what do I do? So I called one of these people that I had met over the summer and networked with and who was really helping us build a company. I said, hey, I, um, I'm supposed to be receiving money, but I don't know, where, where do I get a bank account? Like, what should I do? And uh, he said, look, everybody uh, has a bank account uh, at this place called Silicon Valley Bank. Mm -hmm. Great. Thanks so much for the information. I go online, I look up Silicon Valley Bank. I'm like, oh, there's one in Palo Alto. Perfect. I just drive right over there. And so I drove over. It was like a two o'clock on a Tuesday afternoon. And um, I go to open the door and the door's locked. I'm looking at my watch. I'm thinking, what kind of a bank isn't open at two o'clock on a Tuesday (laughs) afternoon? So I'm kind of looking, peering in through the window and I see there's a woman sitting inside at a desk. And so I kind of knock on the window and she gets up, she comes over and she kind of cracks the door open and says, can I help you? I said, oh yeah, I'd like to open a bank account. And she 
she said, well, that's that's not really how it works here at, at Silicon Valley Bank. You have to have an appointment. And I said, oh, well, I'd like to make an appointment to open a bank account. And she said, well, <laughs> so you, you, we don't really take walk-in appointments. Um, you're, you're going to have to get an appointment you know, with, with somebody internally that works here. And then she shut the door. And I thought, oh my gosh, what kind of a bank doesn't let you open an account? <laughs> I have money to deposit into this account. So I went back to my car and I'm sitting in my car and I'm literally calling all these different people saying, how do I open an account at, at Silicon Valley Bank? How do I get an appointment? And I get a call back in about you know 45 minutes or an hour later from somebody who works at Silicon Valley Bank. And he says, hey, um, I don't know who you are, but I just received about four phone calls from four different people saying, I got to help you open an account. And so why don't you come over here and let's open an account together? So I went over there, we opened this account, and then I called back the CEO of the company that was going to give us money and said, oh, I'm so sorry for the delay. It's been kind of a crazy day, but here's the, the, the bank account information for you to wire the money to. Just cool, uh, you know, no, no, no relaying that I had literally just spent four hours trying to open a bank account. I love the real, the real stories behind startups and how they're created because those types of things, like people don't even think about that, right? Like you're just getting started and someone wants to pay you money. Like, wait a minute, all these like little details that get lost that you don't even hear about when people are building companies. You see them now are like, oh yeah, but all these things in the beginning are so important. And one thing that you mentioned from going from a services business just to get started with to then developing the product on the way, take me through that in terms of getting to the product that actually came to market first. Yeah, we, um, we we didn't have a way to launch the company, as I said, uh, through through venture funding, and so we ended up doing this this service business. And um, all along the way, we knew that we wanted to. We knew this data was going to be really valuable. We we just, I think, what I had a hard time doing, and even now this is hard to do, which is to articulate how that data was going to be useful. And um, I think that was really the leap of faith that that we were taking and that others would have to take if they wanted to get behind us. And so one of the things that happened along the way was we discovered that there was kind of tying it back to the original reason I wanted to start the company. We discovered that there was this opportunity to really um, go after a, a certain part of the microbiome to look at preterm labor and how do you avoid preterm labor? And I ended up getting introduced to the Mayo Clinic by one of these people who was mentoring me that I had met during the summer. And um, he, we, we flew out to Rochester, Minnesota, in, and this was in uh, the fall, so it was starting to get pretty crisp up there. <laughs> and I also asked the previous CEO uh, of the company that I had worked at to please come join me for that meeting. And what I had realized when I was in these this series of failed venture capital pitches was that um, I'm a scientist. And so I think the science behind the idea, nobody questioned that. And I had a pitch deck of you know, 30 slides that were all about the science. And really what they were questioning is, do you know how to build a business? Do you know how to create a product? Do you know how to, to actually make this thing happen? And so what I started to... Um, to do was to think about how do I, how do I give people comfort that I'm not doing this by myself, that I know how to learn new information, that I know how to execute on this. So when I went to meet this Mayo Clinic group, I brought two people that had had multiple successful exits and were much more established business people than I was. And I brought them there to demonstrate that if you invest in me, you're not just investing in a scientist, you're invest, these guys are willing to fly all the way here, sit with me in a pitch deck. They're truly involved in this company. 
And I think that made a big difference. These weren't faces on a slide. These were people who were in the flesh saying, I'm committed enough to this company that I'm sitting here pitching alongside this person. And we ended up getting an investment from the Mayo Clinic. That was our first investment that we got. It was a convertible note. And um, three months after that, we got our first venture funding and we've been venture funded ever since then. And um, I think it was a series of learning what our weaknesses were and learning how to compensate for them and learning how to give people comfort that even though we didn't have that experience, we knew how to get it and we knew how to bring the right team members in to help us get it and that um, we could convince those people to really join uh, our vision. And that was how we ended up pivoting. We always wanted to have uh, venture funding because we knew that we were going to need a substantial amount of money. Um, and that bootstrapping would be just a much longer road. And we also had a fear that somebody else would catch up to what we were doing if we didn't have the, the funding to really accelerate the growth of the company. Um, and so we started by bootstrapping, but as soon as we had the evidence to show people we could execute, we went right back to the venture community to, to start pitching again to raise that funding. And I mean, what was the evidence? Was it just that the team was in place and you had made some some progress? Like, what were some of those things that you had done that made it appealing? Because for people who aren't familiar, I mean, you've, you've raised 50-something plus million dollars from like Sequoia, Casa, True Ventures, all these uh, incredible venture capital firms uh, in time. But like, what were some of those things early on that got people to commit, like True Ventures, for instance? Um, I think that when you are a technical founder, the thing that people are looking for is are you influential enough to be able to bring heavy hitters in alongside you to build this company out? And those heavy hitters typically come in the form of uh, advisors or even board members. And um, and then certainly people that you hire and, and bring along. We, we had three co-founders, so it's not like we needed uh, more chefs in that kitchen. <laughs> um, and so... What we demonstrate, and then I think they're also looking to see, can you execute on something or are you just somebody that has an idea? So the key things that we did during that period of time was, first of all, we got these people from you know chatting with us over the summer to saying, all right, I'll be on your board. Um, okay, I'll come with you to these investor pitches. They didn't just sit with me in that Mayo Clinic investor pitch. They came with me to, to investor pitches with venture capitalists. And that really showed that we were able to convince these guys that this was a worthwhile idea for them to spend their busy time to, to carve out time in their busy day <laughs> for these meetings. And I think that was compelling. That was important. And then we had also accumulated other advisors who um, were you know, not sitting at the table, but were also heavily involved and willing to take phone calls and willing to go to bat for us. Um, and, and that was also really important. And then I think the last thing that was really important was that through this um, you know, service business that we created, we had people who were fans of what we were doing who said, I'm getting insights from this team that I haven't gotten from anybody else. And the kind of people that we were doing service work for were really knowledgeable about the microbiome, really knowledgeable about DNA sequencing technologies, and um, really well-respected in, in, their, in their fields. And so to have these people now saying, this is a team that can execute, I believe they're going to find something valuable here because they've already given me something of value. Um, I think those are some of the key things that that showed them that we know we're doing. We had a, a, a bank account. We had uh, <laughs> you know, paper. We, we incorporated the company. We had patents filed. So like we had really checked all these boxes to show that, hey, man, we didn't know what we were doing. But look, you gave us in the last six to nine months, we really got all this together. We look like a real startup now. 
We are a real company, yes. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which, <we're> is, real. <laughs> which is what they're looking for, especially at that stage. And one thing I'm curious about, I know I heard from a different podcast, like you obviously started with type two diabetes as your first application, but how did you get to that decision of that was the application you you wanted to run with? Well, um, as with any kind of platform technology, one of the biggest challenges you have is how do I explain to somebody that this has broad applications, but then also appear to be focused on, you know, what is the first thing that you're going to bring out? And I, I didn't realize that second part was so incredibly important. So I we talked a lot about all the broad applications of this DNA sequencing discovery platform and all the different things that you could go after. And um, I had this a pitch that I gave to, as I said, after we got all this, um, you know, these boxes checked, we went back out to the venture community and, and we're pitching again uh, to try to get funding. And I um, met with Adam DeGelli from True Ventures and he came, I was, we were at the QB3 incubator at that time. And he came into the building. And he said, well, I'm super excited to get to meet you, Colleen, because I have gotten emails and phone calls from about three <laughs> or four people that I really respect that have all said, you're going to love Colleen's company. You're going to love what they're doing. you got to invest in this company. And um, this was another trick that I learned, which is that you, the more people that somebody hears about you from that are people that they already respect, those become proxies for you know, your, your credibility. And and that's really what you're looking for as a first time founder is proxies for your credibility. And so we sat down together in this room and I said, and I made this joke, which was, well, you've heard so many great things that essentially if you don't fund us, then I realize it's all, it's all cause of me. And we sort of had a good laugh about that. And I gave my pitch and we got to the end of it and he said, okay, I'm not going to fund you. And I thought, oh my God, why didn't I make that stupid joke? <laughs> about it being me. Now it's clearly me. Um, it's definitely a, it's not you, it's me. Um, and so he said, but let me give you some clear reason why. He said, I, I think that you're a strong scientist. I can see that you've made a lot of good progress. You met with me before, you know, or, or you, you had this uh, information before that you said you were going to execute on, and now you're showing me you've executed on it. Um, but you're, you need to have a flagship product. You need to take all these different applications that you think that you can go after. You need to pick one and you need to show me what that business opportunity is going to look like and just deep dive onto it. Don't tell me about all the different spaces you can go into and throw these big numbers of the market sizes. Show me an actual development plan for a single one of these. And so I said, okay, thank you. And I really took that to heart. And that was when we said, all right, let's make a decision. And we had all this data we'd accumulated. Um, and from a scientific perspective, we knew that there was a big low-hanging fruit opportunity in the diabetes and metabolism space. And we also knew that none of our competitors that had raised actual venture funding were going after metabolism. They were all going after a different disease in the microbiome. I said, okay, we have an opportunity from a competitive landscape perspective. There's good science supporting that we can do something here. We believe we can build something here. And um, it's a huge market, right? The, the pre-diabetes, obesity, and diabetes uh, population is not only massive, but it's growing both in the U.S. and globally. So we've got a, a good market size opportunity here. And so it was really Adam's pressure to pick something that forced a decision for us. And then we went out and we created data specifically around type 2 diabetes and a pitch around that. And I came back to him a couple months later and I said, all right, this is, um, we're going to go after type 2 diabetes and this is what it's going to look like. And uh, we were at that time trying to raise a million dollar convertible note 
Um, I had a fellow CEO and uh, who's now become a good friend and a mentor. Um, he said, I will invest 250000 of your million dollar convertible note. And so when I came back to Adam, I said, we're going to raise a million dollar convertible note. We've already got 250000 spoken for. And um, Adam came back and said, we want to give you, uh, we want to help you launch your company and you're going to need a lot more than a million dollars. We'd like to give you $3 million and the round. <laughs> And that was how we got our first funding. That's incredible. <laughs> and going from that then, first time founder, you have a bank account, you have funding, you went from a service, you got a lot of insights from that, then to a product. How did you spread the word about this? How did you acquire customers? I'm curious about that side of things. Yeah. Well, there's that middle part, which is the seven years of actually creating the product. Subtlety. <laughs> Subtlety. <laughs> yes, exactly. I love that. Like, overnight. And then we had a product. Um, yeah. yeah exactly. I mean, the, the, the ugly truth is that, um, you know, it took us almost a decade to create this product because, you know, biology is hard. And yeah. um, we were really creating something from scratch. We were bootstrapping our way from a data insight into actually being able to build a product. Um, and so we, we built that product and we actually just launched it, uh, last year. So it, it's pretty fresh onto the market. Um, and we, uh, really had a, a tough decision to make, which was whether to bring this product down the pharmaceutical path or to stick with our original game plan, which was to bring this directly to consumers, to, to make it available more quickly, um, to, to people who could really benefit from it today. And so, Again, this is something that none of us had experience in, uh, which is developing a consumer product and then selling a product to consumers. And so I would say for us, the last year and a half has been a, uh, say it's like drinking from a fire hydrant. It's been a serious <laughs> learning lesson in how do you um, understand what a market looks like? How do you bring a consumer product market? It's all the same stuff too. Like, great, we want to sell this product. Now, what do we do? How do you build a website? Uh, how do you think about what a brand is? I mean, so it's been a lot of figuring that part out to bring the product to market. The, the really important thing here, though, is that we are the only probiotic out there that has been clinically shown to help people with type 2 diabetes, to lower A1C, to lower blood glucose spikes. So we have this compelling product that doesn't exist anywhere in the world today that has delivered on our original promise of being able to have therapeutic efficacy that's clinically proven, but be natural. And so really what we've rested on is that's the storyline. This has got real science and medicine behind it. It is uh, has published clinical efficacy, but it's all these natural ingredients. And through that, we've found customers who are, you know, obviously with any company you're dealing with early adopters, but people who are saying, all right, I'll take a chance on this. It's, it's natural. It's going to help me with my disease. And they are seeing incredible results. And so then you start to get the spread of the word of these people who are experiencing these results to other people. And that's really been um, how we have began to, to grow the business and grow the customer base. Taking a step back to what you mentioned with, you know, you decided to go direct to consumer. Take me to that decision-making process. I mean, what were some of the factors that led to that or or how did you approach that? Because I mean, that's a, it's a pretty big decision. I would love to hear more about that from a decision-making process standpoint or how you decided to go about that. 
Yeah, I think when we were trying to decide what to do, at the end of the day, I think as a startup, you're often making decisions with very little information. And so in a lot of ways, none of us likes to admit that because we want to show that we had all these rationales. This is all very well thought through. But in the day, you're like, well, feels like this is the right thing to do. And, and that's kind of what you do. There's a lot of gut instinct involved, frankly. Um, but, but the rationale really was um, there were three key things that we were observing in the world that really led us to feel solid about this decision. The first was this movement away. There's a little bit of an anti-drug movement that's been happening, kind of brewing in both the U.S. and globally. And um, there's this real movement towards, you know, are there natural solutions for my health? Do I really have to be taking all these drugs that have all these nasty side effects? And I think that movement has has been kind of brewing for a little while, at, but there just haven't been products that people could turn to and say, all right, this is something that could work for me. But there's this anti-drug sentiment and, and pro-natural. And, you know, Amazon's acquisition of, of Whole Foods, it sort of happened. And, and that was a good example of that movement. I think the second movement was the fact that data is readily available to all of us. And uh, there's this new phenomenon in our generation that's happening, which is um, when you used to be that when you got sick, the first person you called was your doctor. Now, when you start feeling something funny going on, what's the first thing you do? You go online and you look it up. You don't call your doctor. And, and it's so, cancer every time. It's cancer, obviously. Right? Um, and, and so everybody can look up information on their own and people are taking the ownership of their health into their own hands and they are actively seeking solutions. And so if you can create a space on the internet that provides people with information, you don't have to go through a doctor. Whereas if you have a prescription drug, you can only get it through a doctor. So it's sort of this movement of people wanting natural products against you know anti-drugs a little bit, um, this movement towards people being able to proactively go out and find data on their own and, and look for solutions on their own. Um, and then lastly, uh, there was this, there's, there's this um, anti-pharma sentiment and anti-drug pricing sentiment that's been happening politically. And uh, I will say, I said then, and I will say today, I think it's still true. It does not matter whether you're a Democrat or Republican, you believe drug prices are too high. And when you have <laughs> one of the only things in the world that these two parties agree on, you better believe something's going to happen on that front. And yeah. so I just felt like the drug pricing and the ROI and all of the math that's done on how much you can get back for a drug, that's not going to be true five to 10 years from now. And so forward looking five to 10 years from now, what product do you want to have out there? It felt like I'd want to have a consumer product out there. On that note of the pricing side of things, how have you decided that for Pendulum? Yes, pricing is a an ongoing question, I think, <laughs> that, that constantly uh, plagues the business. For us, um, it we're because we're we're simpletons, it's really based on how much it costs us to make the product. This is an extremely expensive product to make. It is yeah. in novel, and so we've actually built out all the manufacturing ourselves. We are manufacturing it in the US. Um, and moreover, it's not like we have this blueprint manufacturing plant that we could just, you know, uh, either collaborate with somebody on or, or do ourselves. We are building this thing from scratch in an entirely novel way because these strains have um, special needs in the way that they're manufactured. And so we have like PhD microbiologists that are our so-called manufacturing technicians. Um, <laughs> so it's expensive to make and the pricing is really uh, to, to try to make sure that we're not losing money on every bottle that we've sold. And to be frank, in the beginning here, we were losing money on every bottle that we sold. It was like a big moment when we uh, crossed over into, you know, and I think it was like, we made 75 cents on that bottle. <laughs> 
So um, yes, <laughs> unit <laughs> economics very important. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So it's it's not a very sophisticated pricing model from a, a you know demands uh, part. It's really just from the cost side that we're 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 pricing now. With with that being such an important decision, and obviously it's it, it really impacts the business and the business model behind it. And with you being, I mean, first time founder, but you have so much. It, you have so much of the science background with the pricing. I mean, how did you even go about that? Obviously, looked at the cost. Who did you talk to around that, or did you guys, as a team, just be like, "Yeah, this is what we're going to do"? Like, I'm just curious to know more of the background behind that. So, we did a small pricing study, I think, on Facebook. Um, but I, I'll just say, like, that data didn't really drive too much of our decision making. There's a lot of information around pricing of consumer products that exists out there, kind of in the general knowledge base. So, for example. Everybody knows that if you, um, there, there are these certain price points or if you can get under them, you kind of unlock uh, a new large segment. So if you can be under $100, um, that's different than being over $100. If you can get under $50, that's another mm. kind of break point. And under $20 is the next break point. So in other words, there's no point in selling, thinking about the difference between $52 and $58, but there is something worth thinking about $48 versus $55, right? So like there, there are these known breakpoints in pricing and we were well above the $100 price point. And then it turns out kind of on the other end that once you're above a certain price, there's a pretty large price insensitivity because now you're talking to an audience that has a reasonable amount of disposable income. Um, and, and so the difference now between, for example, you know, $150 and $180, that's $30. That's a, that's a good chunk of change. But somehow in that category, it doesn't make as big of a difference. And yeah. so we, we kind of knew this information going into it um, and know, knew the cost of, of, of creating the product. But I think the most important thing for us is because we're scientists, we're very empirically minded. So we were like, well, let's just slap up a website, throw the price on there, and then let's just see. And then yep. let's offer various discounts that get people at a lower price. And let's see if it changes how many people come in the door. And then let's offer it as like a subscription versus a single bottle versus, oh, you just want to come in for three months and let's give it different prices. And let's just you know, change them around. The The thing about being a, a company that nobody knows about is nobody knows about you. So you can kind of do these games and change yeah. the pricing and nobody really knows. And so um, it's a good opportunity to just check out what the pricing does to your, um, you know, to your acquisition in a empirical way. I mean, you have real data that you're looking at that tells you what's changing. Yeah. And it's, it's something that's always, I mean, it's almost like, underlooked at. I mean, I talked to a lot of different founders in different industries, B2B and direct to consumer. And it seems like a lot of like the B2B software, they, I mean, they have tested a lot <laughs> on that side. Uh, and then I usually look at some of the consumer ones like they have, but it depends on which company has, if, if they've gotten farther along, they really test a lot more to figure out what the, what the price should be. And I think not testing enough can be detrimental in some ways, uh, but it depends on where you are, but it's an interesting thing to be able to look at how do people actually respond to a legit change of of it? And then you can play with it from there. But with that as well, with this, I mean, with understanding that and having like the consumer side of it, you're direct to consumer, people can see this. What goes into or how have you thought about the the language behind this, the the, the you know, the, the copy behind this? Because you're a scientist, but this is for the consumers. Take me through like your thinking around that. Well, I think anytime you're doing something new, there's sort of um, there's three key steps. Um, the first step, well, maybe there's four key steps. The first step is acknowledging that you don't know this subject. 
which is sometimes can be tricky for, for in certain situations. So the first thing is acknowledging, like, I don't know anything about marketing and messaging. The, the second thing is learning the vocabulary. Every field has its own vocabulary. And every time I've had to learn something new, it's always started with what are the terms people use? What do those terms mean? Why are these the important things people are talking about? And, and that really gives you insight into what matters in those, um, in those fields. What are the, you know, like, for example, KPI? That's not a phrase that gets used anywhere in science, but it's an important <laughs> part of, you know, marketing and selling a product. So it's, yeah. it's learning the vocabulary. And that, for me, is talking to lots of people and, and reading. Um, and then the third step is, all right, how do I find the person who's going to come in here or the people who are going to come in here and they're going to fill this gap? Because now I have all the like fundamental knowledge, but I still, you need the right people to come in and execute. And so that third part is how do I identify who the good people are? And this is really hard when it's not your field. Like if you send me two resumes of two biologists, I can tell you right out of the gates, like, oh, this is the one I'd interview. I know what I'm looking for. And sometimes it's very subtle. But in the beginning, and I would say even now, you send me two marketers' resumes, it's not obvious to me, like, oh, they both seem really good. And marketers are great at marketing themselves. And so yeah. that's a additional challenge. Um, and so uh, it's understanding, like, what is what does good look like and what does not good look like? And again, that's kind of reaching out to your network that's saying, hey, can you introduce me to some amazing marketers you've worked with? Or even can you introduce me to some marketers that you think were terrible so that I can see, I can understand what does good versus bad look like? And then the fourth step. So it's like acknowledge that you have a problem, <laughs> learn, learn the fundamental vocabulary, understand the difference between what good and bad looks like in a team member. And then the fourth part is recruiting and convincing an amazing person to come and join your team or build out your team with amazing people that can execute on this. And I think those are the four steps when you're kind of doing anything new. And those were the four steps that I took when I, I went to go build on this marketing. So I would say like I... Um, built out, we built out a marketing team of people who came in and we said, we have all this science, we have this pill, and they ended up taking the reins on, how are we gonna describe this to consumers? How are we gonna break down this science? How are we gonna make this com the compelling messaging around that? And uh, that was really what we launched with, was with, with their vision of what this should look like. And now, um, after being in the market for about a year, we can look back on who our customers actually are, uh, as opposed to who we hypothesized they were going to be a year ago, and say, all right, is the messaging still working? And to be honest, um, I think that our current messaging is a little bit obsolete. So we are in the process of how do we expand our messaging to really um, target the audience that are our consumers to get more of them? And um, that's, again, it's, a, it's an endeavor in finding the right people to help you do that. With leading this company, starting this company, being the CEO of this company, what's been helpful for you as as a leader to learn more as a leader to understand how to be in the business side, not just a scientist, but you're leading a company of many people now underneath you leading, you know, you have the guidance of this. How have you gone about investing yourself as a leader or developing as a leader? I think it's really important to make sure that you understand who you are. This is sort of a life truth. It's important to know who you are before you go out and find other people to have a relationship with. <laughs> and yeah. so um, that's why it's hard to marry your high school sweetheart, because it turns out in high school, you don't have a good sense of who you are. True. Um, Very true. <laughs> we all presumably evolve. Um and, and so it's the same thing, too, with leadership. I think you you have a feeling about what kind of leader you are, but you're you're constantly learning. You're constantly evolving as your your situation 
changes. And so for me, I had had many years of experience managing people. And so I have a sense of the things that are really important to me. One of the fundamental things that has always been really important to me is I love, one of the things that gives me a lot of pleasure is I love watching people um, extend beyond their starting point and accomplish things that they couldn't accomplish before. That to me, um, I just think that's really cool. I love seeing that. And so as a manager, I've always tried to create opportunities for people to to do that uh, because that feels really good to me to see. And as a leader, I would say that has held fundamentally true. And I, I think the difference between being a manager that does that and being a leader that believes in that is now I'm trying to hire people into management and and actually train them on how do you do that successfully? Because if the people under you, if, if your value as a manager is that the people under you are actually accelerating and doing great things and working together to build great things, um, you behave differently than if you're a manager because you kind of like to be the one in charge. And so philosophically, the company has a, a different mentality because of how I think about management and leadership. I've also had different executive coaches. I have uh, probably, you know, no less than a dozen mentors at any time, which are <laughs> other CEOs, uh, other people who are leading different different uh, things to kind of help me figure out what, what the different challenges are. And probably the most important thing is constantly soliciting feedback, asking for 360s, asking for people to review you, asking what you're doing wrong, wanting to know what you can do better, genuinely wanting to know what you can do better. And that's the only way to improve. With building this company as well, how do you recharge away from work? Um, I think it's really important to, from day one, when you start a company to decide what the boundaries are and what your prioritization in life is going to be and how this startup is going to play into the bigger scheme of your life. Um, I'm married. I have kids. I have dogs. <laughs> You've got, <laughs> you know, my, my parents, friends, there's a lot of stuff all of us have in our life and responsibilities that we have beyond just our work. And so I had a lot of discussions with my husband when starting this company about what is it going to be like? And you definitely hear all those stories about, you know, when you start a company, it's 24 seven, it's your whole life and you're going to you <laughs> put this first. And um, essentially my husband and I, I mean, he said, look, I'm not going to support you starting a company if that's what it's going to look like. Um, and, and so I have always kind of operating the same way, which is that there's a window of time for work. And um, I don't really do stuff outside of those windows unless there's like an, a clear emergency. And I've kind of stuck to that. So I, my team kind of has a sense of when I start my day, that's when they start getting the flood of emails from me. And they know <laughs> when I end my day because that's when the emails stop. And so I think that um, it's important to carve out time for the other things that are important in your life. And it is not easy. It is a daily set of decisions based on that compass that you create. And you have to be really disciplined about not allowing things to flood into other things. That's been one of the challenges, I think, of COVID. For many of us, working from home, things start to blend together and trying to uh, still be disciplined about carving out the right time and the right way to these different parts of your life and the different responsibilities you have is key. And could I be doing more for my company? Absolutely. If I were doing more, might the company be more successful? Probably. But it's a decision that I've made to not spend that time doing those things. Um, and, and that's really the 80-20 the rule that, that we all have to kind of decide for ourselves. 
how have you communicated that with with your investors? Had those discussions around that? I, I know there's different opinions on things. Investors understand like founder health is so important, though. I mean, how have those communi- communications or conversations gone with your investors? Obviously, they're top investors, so I think they would understand. But I'm just curious on how they uh, how those have gone. We've been very lucky in having investors that have a thesis that supporting the founder is supporting the company's success. I don't think all, um, at least from conversations that I've had with some of my fellow colleagues, I don't think that all um, VCs are like that. And and that has been an important fundamental part of being able to build the company in a way that made sense for my life. And um, I think it's hard when you're raising money for a company because um, you just want to raise that capital for, for the company. And what you, what you maybe know, but you don't really understand is that these are partners with you. They're partners with you through thick and thin. And just like any partner, any relationship, you have to fundamentally be aligned on, on, on some things. And so being founder supportive, uh, you know, True Ventures and Sequoia, they don't just talk the talk, they walk the walk. They really are supportive of founders. And this is a big part of that. So to be honest with you, I've never had to have a discussion about, I'm going to spend my time here, I'm going to spend my time there. They're aware of it. They, they know that, uh, oh, I can't talk now, we're in the middle of dinner. Um, they know that I'm making those decisions, but we've never had to have that kind of a conversation about trade-offs because they're supportive. And I think that's been really important. And I encourage all of our team members um, to to strike the balance, uh, you know this is this is not a sprint. This is a, a marathon, and so in order to be able to make it to the end of the marathon, you you got to have the right replenishments. Yeah, and I think more and more people are realizing that. And from talking to to more and more founders, they understand that. Yeah, you can't just get burnt out in year one. I mean, you're going to be doing this for many years, especially if all goes according to plan. It's going to be a long journey you have to invest in yourself and to be able to take care of yourself. And I think what you mentioned around setting boundaries is so important as well. And I always think of the like kind of a picture of like the, putting the big rocks in the jar first and then everything filled around it. And what those big rocks are for you in your life, your family time, your exercise, whatever that may be, uh, sleep and all those things, those go first. And then everything around it uh, has to go from there. Then you see how much progress you can make in your business from that. But it's not like you just work nonstop. It's just never a recipe for success, uh, at least long term. And where can people go to learn more about Pendulum and connect with you if they'd like to as well, Colleen? Um, people can check us out at PendulumLife.com. And uh, and then also feel free to uh, reach out to us if there are any questions. Um, yeah, I think just to, to agree with your point about striking this balance, I would say another important tool is having people around you who will tell you when you're falling out of balance. Mm, and yeah. um, we, I live in Menlo Park and our company is in San Francisco. When we first started the company, I was driving uh, up and down 101 every day. And when we first started the company, the economy wasn't awesome. And so it was okay. That drive was not awesome, was not great, but it was not terrible. As the economy started to improve, the traffic was getting worse and worse. Mm. And, um, and I was showing up for work, frankly, just grumpy. And after sitting in traffic for an hour and um, my co-founder said to me, you know, you're like walking through the front door grumpy every morning. It's pretty lame. What's your problem? And I was like, it's a stupid fucking traffic. It's terrible. I'm, the work I'm just wasting my two hours of my life sitting on 101. Yeah. And so he said, well, why don't you take the train up? 
I said, oh, I don't want to take the train. Like I, driving is, I like my convenience. I like to be able to come and go as I please. And so he basically set me up on the train. He got me a Wi-Fi, a MiFi. He got me uh, the card for the train, mm-hmm. put money on it, and basically handed me all my tools and said, here's the schedule. Just try it. And so try it for a week, right? And so I tried it for a week. And this is something about establishing habits, right? If you do something consistently for some amount of time, it starts to become... A- so I did it for a week and I realized that because he'd set me up that way, I was now spending still an hour commuting each way, but it was an hour sitting on a train getting stuff done. And it transformed my entire existence and uh, was was because he pointed out and then he helped me solve it. Colleen, there's there's so much we could dive into. I know we're out of time. Thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show today. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, thank you so much for having me, and um, I uh, I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Just Go Grind. If you want to follow along on the socials for all things Just Go Grind and with me as well, you can find Just Go Grind on Instagram and Twitter at Just Go Grind. You can find me on Twitter at JustinGordon212. Find me on Instagram, JustinGordon8. Thank you so much for listening. Have a great day.